Welcome to the Modern Data Show, where we explore the latest trends and technologies in data and analytics with some of the brightest minds in the industry. Today, we are excited to be joined by Ian, the head of analytics and engineering at, and data science at RAM, a company that's revolutionizing the way companies spend less. Ian brings a wealth of experience to the table, having previously led data teams at Wayfair and Drizzly. Ian is known for his expertise in developing and improving analytics platform and his ability to guide companies through fast-paced changes for compliance and security. He's also an MBA graduate from Harvard Business School. We are looking forward to diving into Ian's insights on data-driven decision-making, modern BI stacks, and the future of corporate spending. So let's get started. Ian, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to the chat. Perfect. So Ian, uh, let's start with the first question. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your role at RAM, and specifically what you and your team are responsible for? Yeah, absolutely. So um, maybe I can, I can start a little bit talking about RAM. It's a company that if you haven't used it, it's sort of hard to understand. Uh, so very generally, RAM is automating the finance stack for businesses right now. Uh, so really building up the next generation of finance automating tools. So that's corporate cards, which is sort of what we were first known for. Now it's expense management, bill pay, accounting integrations, and, and very much a company that is really designed around saving businesses time and money. That is truly what our vision is. That's how we make decisions. That's how we think about the product. Uh, and largely, uh, this has been a company that's grown super quickly. Um, and what we're working on on the data team is really figuring out how, as we go from you know one to 10 to 100 to sort of tens of thousands of businesses, how we can start to take that data exhaust and help ramp internally make better decisions, but externally also help ramp sort of build products that we now have the right to with all the data that we have to help save our customers more time and money. Amazing. And how did that transition from the Harvard MBA to data and analytics happen? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so the, the MBA was actually a bit of a detour. Uh, I started my analytics career at Wayfair. Uh, they had, you know, at the time, legions of business intelligence analysts that they hired out of school, and I was one of them. Uh, and that's really where I sort of learned about how a massive, you know, soon-to-be public international company thought about data, really sort of one generation of tech stacking. So in my, you know, first couple of years, uh, I had experience with on-prem hardware, um, you know, things like Hadoop or clickstream data, distributed computing, really having issues where, you know, once you got to data of a certain size, you either had to not do the analysis or really leverage custom infrastructure. Uh, at Wayfair, got a little bit deeper into pricing and recommendation machine learning. Uh, and when I left, it was mostly because I felt I really didn't want to get pigeonholed just into sort of the pricing machine learning space. And especially for recommendations, you can spend an entire career on that. Um, Went to business school, I think, with the intent that I would return to analytics. I think probably went in thinking it would be at a mega tech company like a Facebook or Google and came out really wanting to lead a data team. And I had that opportunity at Drizzly. Uh, Drizzly was really my first experience at a cloud native company. So it was founded in 2012 or 2013. So they never owned a server entirely on AWS. Um, and I really remember kind of thinking about, okay, you know, this is not a culture of we build everything in-house. It's a culture of having to be very precise. Uh, so if you think about the modern data stack, right, I think what's really valuable about it is if you take someone who's pretty talented and can read some docs and hack at some stuff and you give them a credit card, they can build most of an analytics stack maybe in an afternoon. Um, and so that is really kind of where I developed the modern data stack. I think really kind of grew my own career along with the 
trajectory of sort of the modern data stack and these tools. Um, Drizzly was successful, grew the team substantially. Obviously, there's a pretty big COVID boom as it was alcohol and demand. Uh, and then came to Ramp recently and sort of say Ramp largely was a company that's also been pretty successful. Um, and sort of same thing, really wanted to inject data. I think the first year was building a lot of the data sort of building blocks, um, things that are just foundational to the business, right? Like how many website visitors did we have, building out some of our first multi-touch attribution, being able to answer product analytics questions. Uh, and now what this next year is really going to be defined by is building things that are a lot more proprietary. So building out things that there might not be a Medium article on or you know a DBT Slack talk on, thinking about uh, things that Ramp can sort of build that are proprietary for the first time. Amazing. And can you help us understand how does Ramp's corporate card differ from traditional card offerings that are available in the market? Absolutely. Um, and, and so there are a ton of answers to this question, but I'll just sort of start with a simple example. Um, if you think about maybe five years ago, you might have had an American Express and Expensify. And you think about spending money on a restaurant. Uh, you have to get the receipt from the restaurant pay a SaaS fee for Expensify, input, which probably happens at the end of the month, your receipt, and someone sort of has to go through all of that and put it all together. And just the fact these are two different tools just really doesn't make any sense. Like Expensify doesn't necessarily have context that you have swiped that credit card until they see the receipt. Amex doesn't have context on what the receipt is until you input it. So it's a very reactive way to run a business. Ramp's rise really has due to the fact that it becomes so easy to issue virtual credit cards. So we use Stripe and Marketa as issuing partners, uh, and we can spin up credit cards much more proactively. So I'm just going to give you an example of an engineering offsite that we did to Miami. We can use an HRIS integration, figure out every single engineer, the person in the engineering org, uh, issue a credit card for $1,000 to be used only on flights and transportation. All of that already has the accounting coding done and the card expires three days after the engineering offsite is over. So if you think about what that enables um, for sort of a person who uses the card, it's a little easier, like you don't have to do receipt matching. But if you think about what it enables for a finance team, it's actually tremendous. And there's sort of two reasons why. The first is all of this spend is proactively approved. You know the maximum that you can spend on this engineering offsite when you issue the cards. Second, all of the accounting coding and context is encoded in the card. You know that this is for an engineering offsite. You don't have to go in and manually click. And then additionally, we have a lot of integrations, whether it's Gmail, whether it's Uber or Lyft, such that these receipts sort of automatically flow in. So really, I would say it's a card that allows you to be very proactive and add context to every single dollar that you spend. I would say for a general employee, it saves you a little bit of money on receipt matching and counting coding. You don't have to do the thing where you chase down receipts at the end of the month. For a finance team and a CFO, it's a bit of a superpower. Very interesting. Let's let's dive a little bit deeper about your team. You know, can you explain how your data team is structured at Ramp and how have you scaled this team so far? Absolutely. Uh, so day one for me at Ramp, uh, we were a four or five person data team at a company that had already raised at an $8 billion valuation, which is just sort of nuts. Like it's, it's uh, it was the wrong size data team. And so we, we certainly had a lot of growth. Um, and, and I would say definitely the answer, right, for me is it's kind of like 
in perpetuity assuming that how you have set up your team is incorrect. Or at least if it is correct for right this second, it will be incorrect in three months. So the number one answer I have is, is more sort of on process than outcome, which is to really create a culture of feedback where you understand where teams are being well-supported, where they're not, where people are stretched too thin, where they're not stretched too thin. Um, Ramp also really believes in tightly embedded teams, product, engineering, data, and design. So that's how we're organized. The data team rolls up through the CTO, uh, and every single person on the data team is in one or two product and engineering pods. And so what this really means for me is when I hire someone, it is my responsibility to have an opinion on what the best product pod is. Uh, I work obviously with sort of the engineering design product stakeholders to do that. And then largely what I do is put together a 30, 60, 90 for them. And the expectation is that 30 days into it, they're going to rip that up, tell me why it's wrong and tell me what they're going to work on instead. So we really at Ramp value having data team members embedded quite tightly into engineering and products. We give them a ton of autonomy. It's very much sort of like a bottoms up process. Uh, and, and sort of one other part about both our culture and how we organize is really what, what sort of I ask for from the team is that they come up with sort of their three top priorities for a product pod, cross out the bottom two, and that's really what we judge them on. It's sort of like, do they deliver the number one thing that they needed to in the quarter? So super generally, that is that is sort of how our data team is organized. Wow. And uh, tell, tell us a little bit more about this 30, 60, 90 thing. So uh, you said the first 30 days is about ripping apart the, or whatever thing that are already there. So what's 60 and 94? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I, th I think all jobs in an ideal world, 50% of it, you come in knowing how to do very well, and 50% of it, you don't know how to do at all. And I think uh, that's how you get a steep learning curve. That's how you inspire people. That's how you challenge people. That's how you get people to feel like they're progressing. Um, certainly for me, I think I came into Ramp with a lot of experience in growth and product analytics, and very little in terms of enterprise sales, and especially risk, credit, underwriting, fraud. Um, and when I think about 30, 60, 90s, I think we construct them in a pretty similar way where we try to set up pretty tightly defined project that we know needs to be done and no needs some data. Essentially setting someone up for success on a project. That's like a good thing to have in the 30, 60, 90. And then I'd say the other two things that I look for are a bigger, murkier problem space with a team that they can embed in. So for example, you know, working on price intelligence with this engineer and this product person going to these meetings, what network can we create? What meetings can we put on your calendar? Who can you get to know? And then the last piece for me is my expectation of everyone on the data team also has the data team as a stakeholder. So really thinking about how can we have a team that raises the bar? How can we have a team that educates one another? How can we have a team that really thinks it's their responsibility to accelerate everyone's career as data professionals? So largely, I think that's, that's sort of the try to culture I like to have and, and really sort of in a 30, 60, 90 calling out, you know, a project that someone's going to be successful on, a team that they're going to embed with and a surface area where they can raise the bar for the data team. Right. And talking uh, more about stakeholders, how does RAM data team work with other teams like growth, go to market, your risk and compliance team, right? And uh, uh, one of the very common structures that we have seen across organization is having a central data platform team that is responsible for the core data platform. And then you have those federated data engineers who are supporting various different functions. So how, how is that structure for you guys? 
So I would say that really what, what we do is embed tightly into product engineering pods for every single part of the team. And that actually includes data platform. And so I'll give you an example of this, right? Like, like many data companies, we are excited to introduce lower latency systems, streaming, Kafka, feature stores. All of these things I would really consider to be data platform, the same way I would Fivetran, the same way I would Airflow or DBT. When we introduce them, we do not introduce them generally. We introduce them for a very specific and bespoke use case with our heads up thinking about how it can generalize. So I'll give you an example of this. When we rolled out some of our data science stack for the first time, we didn't sort of go across the entire company, do a survey of all the data science projects and sort of think about what to work on. We really tightly embedded into one team and use case, which for us is risk and credit. And we said, we are going to design a data platform and stack that works for the specific use case. And the data platform engineers that are going to work on this are going to show up to risk and credit sprint planning. They're going to know a ton about how we underwrite. They're going to get to know the engineers by name. They're going to get to know the product managers by name. They're going to be incentivized on these KPIs. So largely, I'd sort of say for data platform stuff, kind of the muscle that we've been working on is if you can build something that solves for 15 use cases, that's great. Let's actually be super precise about what the one use case you're going to solve is first and work full speed to set up your data platform to solve that use case first, then figure out how it generalizes. Right. And uh, glad you mentioned uh, risk and security and compliance and credit, right? Uh, unlike your previous experience with Wayfair or Drizzly, uh, while working in those data teams, the situation in RAMP would be probably different from a context of security and compliance when it comes to data. You're dealing with financial transactions, right? What changed you know, from your data leadership perspective in terms of the tools that you operate, in terms of the way you operate teams to be able to take care of security and compliance aspect of RAM. Yeah, absolutely. So so I don't actually think it's all that different um, from, from B2C and sort of there's two different counterpoints, right? I think like we have banking transaction data, we have KYC, KYB bureau data. We, but if you think about a Drizzly or a Wayfair, uh, they, their customers are sort of individuals, right? So I think from a consumer protection standpoint, it's a little bit different. I, I think the number one thing I would say is the data team really needs to lead from the front and get people extremely excited cross-functionally about data compliance and raise that bar. Because uh, it's not something you can do on your own. If you think about a company, right, you're going to have whatever it is, 100, 200, 400 people that all have access to some level of privacy and if you think about sort of compliance and privacy and culture, it really is sort of just like respect. It's something that's sort of like <laughs> built in drops and lost in buckets. Uh, for us, we really have to think about every individual. We have to think about every surface area vector. Uh, if you look at some of the stuff that the FTC has been doing in the U.S., they are um, prosecuting individuals as opposed to companies for a first time. That is deliberate. That is a point that they're making. Um, and so this really needs to be something where you work cross-functionally with your engineering stakeholders and say, hey, unlike other parts of tech debt across an org, this is not something we can pay down in two years. This is not something where we can focus on security and compliance two years from now, right before we go public or whatever the, the event is. This is something that we need to invest in every single day. Uh, 
I have found that the only way to get privacy and security and compliance initiatives is by working on them a little bit every month. So sort of said another way, you never really want to put in a situation where you're sort of like, what are we going to work on this month? The new product launch or privacy, security, and compliance need to have a strong working group that is enabled by the CEO, enabled by the CTO, something that you invest in. And every single month you say, what are going to be sort of the initiatives that we push forward this month? And I think if you do that for two years, you end up in a pretty good place. Yeah. And does it change anything with respect to data engineering perspective? Because we are seeing a lot of, uh, you know, data teams adopting to various tools like, you know, data catalogs or, uh, you know, metadata management tools where the ultimate goal is broader collaboration across data assets, right? And which is pretty much in contradictory to the goals you would have at RAMP in terms of data security and data compliance, right? So uh, what changes from an engineering perspective? What I have found is certainly that like water sort of running to the bottom, people will do their work in the area where they have the most access. And so if you think about data sets, oftentimes they're replicated multiple places, right? You have them in your core. You might have something like a Databricks also pointed at your sort of like core SQL. You move that data via five trans Snowflake. Uh, you move that data in Looker, right? So I would say, right, like we have user-defined Octagroup security access stuff for Snowflake. We have it for Looker. We're really happy about that. But then the next question is, how can you take that access level and have it sort of permeate the entire org? So sort of said another way, if someone can't look up a row of data in Snowflake and Looker, they should not be able to do it in Retool or, or some sort of additional tool that's hooked up to a prod SQL system. So this is something that we're working on right now. It's just sort of think about if there is sort of sensitive data in Snowflake, right? Snowflake didn't generate that row. It came from somewhere else. So how can we be proactive about moving upstream, communicating that we have identified sensitive PII in our data warehouse, figuring out where else it went, uh, and sort of stemming in at the source and making sure that whatever masking or data retention policies we, ha we have sort of as a data team also apply to the rest of the company. Um, but fortunately, we have you know, some great privacy partners and engineering partners to work on this with us. So you have uh, had a couple of experiences in the past where uh, you have kind of taken a completely legacy analytics infrastructure and kind of made an overall to the modern data stack. Uh, how do you decide whether to build a solution in-house or you purchase an existing tool that is out there in the market? How do you, first of all, make that decision? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so a phrase that um, I really love is build what is necessary and strategic, buy what is necessary and sort of ignore everything else. Uh, and so the thought there, and this, this comes from uh, Zach Canner, is, is really like, if you build something, it is not an asset, it is a liability. And that means it needs to be supported forever. And so really thinking about what things that my team builds can I honestly believe will improve fastest within ramps for walls better than anywhere else? And so I'll give you an example of things that aren't that, right? Uh, the ability to move data out of Google Ads into Snowflake. That is not a core competency of ramp. It is something Fivetran's working hard on every day with our engineering. If I take that dependency on Fivetran, I can assume that it will be more stable a year from now than it is today. 
That is not the case if I build that pipeline in-house. If I build that pipeline in-house with the data engineer leaves, I can assume that, that pipeline will be less stable a year from now. Uh, so some other examples, like if you're going to issue a credit card, take a dependency on Stripe or Marketa. They will be better at issuing credit cards than you will be a year from now because that is their business model. And I think largely, right, that focuses you highly on, on sort of saying, what do I need to do better than any company in the world? And that's really sort of what we try to emphasize building. Right. And uh, assuming the case where you make a decision to buy an uh, existing data tool, what's typically the process for you guys? Because I think so. This, this question might be very helpful for a lot of data companies, a lot of data startups who are looking to, you know, kind of provide the solutions to companies at a scale of RAM. So what's your typical process? And by process, I would love to understand is how do you evaluate these tools? Uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, unlike a lot of companies, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but you wouldn't have a standard procurement process in place. I think so it's still very much team driven rather than a procurement process driven. So how does that process look for you? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I will even start sort of before we make the decision to buy the company or, or even try it out. Um, one piece of advice that I have been given that, that's really stuck with me is just sort of the importance of asking for help. All of these tools in the space moves so there is no way that I should know about all these tools. And that's true for everyone, right? And so I, th I think uh, sometimes my team thinks of me as someone who is extremely well networked in the data industry. That is actually not true. Uh, my network is what I would call like just in time. And I'll give you an example. Um, we recently evaluated a tool called Metaflow. That's an open source data science package. Uh, the, the sort of for-profit open core company is Outer Bounds. I joined their Slack channel. I DM'd their CEO and I said, we want to know more about this tool. We have some questions. And he made the time for me, right? And I think that that is one of the coolest things, about whether it's data Twitter, these Slack channels, it's a very open community and you can ask for help. Uh, this specific guy, Vile, uh, set us up with probably two or three people that have adopted Metaflow. We heard some phenomenal things about it. We heard some things that are growing pains for it. We learned a ton about it. And so I would say before even really hopping into kind of anything around procurement, that's where I start is just sort of like figuring out who can help me in the space, trying to get some time in their calendar. And I think you'll be, you'll be really surprised at sort of who raises their hand and, and gives you great advice if you ask for it. Wow, that's a lovely advice. Uh, and uh, so would it be fair for me to say that having a community around our data product is that a big kind of a, uh, a kind of a consideration for you while considering these products i think it absolutely is and i think um you know some of some of the best advice or, or sort of context i've heard on this is actually a podcast with jeremiah of prefect and chathan of benchmark on invest like the best they talk a lot about open source and open core products especially for sort of an open source project it is exciting and it is terrifying if you work either as an investor or sort of an employee at that company because everything you're doing is in public. You can see if people are engaging in your Slack community. Um, you can see if people are downloading your stuff on, on GitHub or not. You can see if people are upgrading to the paid version. Um, so definitely, right? I think like uh, an engineering question that I, that I uh, quite liked in an interview is, how do you know which AWS services to use? Because I think pretty famously, right? Like 
they have over 200 services now, and some of them are, you know, the building blocks of tech and others have sort of quietly fallen by the wayside. And I think it's, it's sort of similar, which is it, it, it makes more sense to take a dependency on something you think is going to be around two years from now and is going to be better tomorrow than it is today. And evaluating the community around a tool, I think, really helps you sort of make those calls. Right. And in, in one of your articles, you mentioned uh, this term called Lerinitis, right? And it was very interesting uh, for me to see that term, right? Can you, can you tell our audience about what exactly is that and how do you tackle it at RAMP? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a concept that is uh, sort of entirely copied from, um, I might butcher the name, but Jean-Michel Lemieux. Uh, he had a great Twitter thread about it, uh, Shopify VP. And sort of the, the observation that he had is that by default, teams code where they can put it fastest as opposed to where it goes when considering the long-term effect on the overall system. I think unquestionably, this is something that I've seen in all sort of stops on my data journey, which is people will use your work. People will take your output. They will transform it for their specific use case. That is really exciting. It is phenomenal that they're doing that. You should always have that ability, but you really need to think about kind of what that pull, like that gravitational pull towards centralization and building production grade stuff is. And so for us, right, like many teams, we have dim fat tables, we have great modeling, we think about Kimball, and then we have additional surface areas where people can say, I'm going to iterate on this stuff, I'm going to build things in my personal schemas, I'm going to build things in notebooks. And, and really sort of actually before you know it, uh, this happened, um, we, we had Ramp had one of our first account takeover events. And so we had people stay up really late and they were doing incredible research on account takeovers. And it was all in notebooks. And to a large extent, Ramp's entire account takeover fraud program for a two-week period was running out of one analyst's personal notebook uh, on their own personal schema. And it was sort of like a bridge off of our own repo and it had a ton of commits because they were iterating really quickly. And all of that was incredible. And that's exactly what we want to enable because fighting fraud is oftentimes like fighting fires. It's like if you hit, you come with a solution two weeks later, like it doesn't matter. The house is already burnt down. So we enabled that person to iterate really quickly. But then thinking about, okay, all of this logic, everything that this person has built that will benefit many teams at Ramp is really living in a pretty silent area of both visibility and dependencies. We don't know what dependencies have been built on top of the data team. And so thinking about how can we invite that person into our code base? How can we show them how to commit? How can we give them help on this journey? How can we really take that work back and distribute it to the entire company in sort of a version controlled way? That is sort of how you solve this laryngitis problem. And, and sort of the number, number one and two things that I think are important are one, a culture of celebrating hardening code, right? Because it is always easy to say, I would rather focus on the next thing. I want to do the next analysis. I want to build the next model. I want to do the next product launch. It's harder to say we are going to take some of our work, refactor it, build it the way it should be. So that's really important. And then the other is a culture of really inviting people into code bases. So I'd say like this is probably the number one thing I've changed my mind on uh, in the last year is one year ago, I would have said the DBT repo is for analytics engineers and analytics engineers only. That is a recipe for people putting business logic in other parts of the stack. So for me now, I think it's really about how can I invite people in 
How can I have them do work that adopts well to DBT? How can we teach them a little bit about DIM and fact tables? How can we teach them about modeling? How can we think about making things accessible and looker for the entire company, as opposed to in sort of like a, a super custom Databricks notebook with 250, 600 lines of code? Um, so largely, like those are the two ways we try to combat Laranitis is sort of a, a celebration of hardening systems. Uh, and really inviting people into code bases and teaching them our best standards. Wow, that's really amazing. And, and uh, before we wrap up today's uh, episode, Ian, last couple of questions before we let you go. Uh, what is that one number one advice that you would give? You would give individuals who are looking to build a career in data and analytics. I think the the number one piece of advice I would give is no one will ever stop you from learning something, and it is really surprising the extent to which you can become an expert on something in two weeks, potentially even like one weekend grinding on a new tool or package. Uh, so no one will stop you from doing this. No one will tell you you have to do this. Um, but I think that's the number one thing is, is just sort of saying like, instead of wanting to know about Docker, watch some YouTube videos, learn Docker. Like if you know how to build a Jupyter notebook, you can go from building a Jupyter notebook to building a Flask app that is hosted at the surface in a weekend, if you put your head down and grind on it. Um, so that's just sort of the number one thing I'd say is like, you can always read the documentation. No one will ever stop you. You can always figure something out quickly, but you really have to invest in putting that time. Nice. And uh, last question, how can the audience learn more about Ramp and the work that you guys are doing? What would be the best way to uh, keep updated with, the, with your work? I would say, Certainly uh, Ramp's website, but then also Ramp's engineering blog. We had a phenomenal post recently by Kevin Chow, uh, who leads our data platform team for analytics engineering, talking about how Ramp saves money with some of our CI CD process. So certainly Ramp is all about saving companies time and money. And hopefully we can contribute back a little bit to the analytics engineering community as well. Um, so I'd say like start, yeah, start with the analytics engineering blog post on Ramp. Perfect. So thank you so much, Ian, for your time for, for this episode. I'm sure. Uh, our audience would learn a lot and uh, they would have received a lot of insights that would help them onto their day-to-day -day work. So thank you for, thank you very much for being a part of the show. Thank you so much for having me.